0: get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash making gay history. That's patreon.com slash making gay history. Or just go to MakingGayHistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. I'd like to introduce you to J.J. Bellanger. But before I do, I have a confession to make. One of the things we take pride in with Making Gay History is bringing long lost or forgotten stories to life. J.J.'s story was one that even I had forgotten. When our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, told me that she'd been listening to J.J.'s compelling interview in the Making Gay History archive, it didn't ring a bell, not even a little bell. But then Sara mentioned a couple of famous black-and-white photo booth pictures of two men from the early 1950s, and I knew exactly who she was talking about. And you may, too. In one of the photos, the handsome young men, each with his head pressed against the other, are looking directly into the camera's lens. Both have faint, mischievous smiles on their lips. In the second photo, they're kissing passionately, and given the times, defiantly. It was 1953, and the man on the right in the photos is 30-year-old J.J. Belanger. 1953 is also the year that J.J. joined the early gay rights group, the Mattachine Society, arriving in Los Angeles to attend the organization's heated constitutional convention that led to the founders being thrown out and a new regime led by Hal Call taking over. You can hear more about the Mattachine Society in two of our earlier episodes, one featuring Hal Call and the other Chuck Rowland, who was one of the five original founders. But the focus of this episode with J.J. Belanger isn't on his involvement with Mattachine. We're going further back in time to the 1930s and 40s, to a wartime love story, and later to J.J.'s work with the legendary Alfred Kinsey, whose research upended common assumptions about sex and sexuality. So here's the scene. It's the summer of 1989, and J.J. is sitting at my kitchen table in San Francisco, where I was living at the time. We're just back from the shabby hotel in the Tenderloin District, where J.J. lives. He didn't want to be interviewed there, so I drove downtown and picked him up. I could smell alcohol in his breath when he got in my car. I brought him back to my place and made him lunch. JJ looks older than 66. He's tall, has a gray beard, and substantial bags under his bloodshot eyes. He talks admiringly of the light-filled room and the early 20th century architecture of my apartment. I remind JJ that we're here to talk about him, so he casts his memory back to growing up gay in Edmonton, Alberta, that's in Canada, before the Second World War. Interview with J.J. Belanger, Saturday, July 8th, 1989, 12 noon. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Location is the author's apartment in San Francisco. Tape one, side one.
1: My father uh, uh, said he was aware of it for quite some time, as a doctor himself, and he proceeded to. I, I still crack up when I think about it, because he caught Archie and I, we were high school lovers in the living room when he came home from Montreal. And Daddy walked uh, from the pantry to the kitchen dining room and through in those old days, we had old butler's pantries in those old homes, especially in Canada. And, uh, he walked through with his brandy and his cigar in one hand, and here we were, doing our thing in front of the fireplace with not a thing on, and Daddy just looked at us and says, ''Hi, fellas, see you in the morning and breakfast.'' <laughs> Which, you know, that was my Daddy. He bought me all the books on then-known homosexuality and fiction. One of them, I'll never forget, two of them, ''The Well of Loneliness'' by Radcliffe Hall, was an eye-bender in those days, and craft Ebbing, I mean, unbelievable. Psychopathia Sexualis was his title. Mm-hmm. And he was very graphic in sex acts and uh, other little daring activities. And his book was a mind bender to us. I'd never seen it before, neither had Dad. And his comment to me was, if you run into words of things you don't understand of a technical medical nature, make little notes down on the weekends when we get together our little sessions, I'll interpret whatever I can. I was very lucky, I had a very understanding family.
0: You were, you were injured in the war then?
1: Yeah, um, we were shot down and uh, in Bomber Command. Uh, we were flying uh, Lancasters And I got a couple of uh, pieces of shrapnel that came through the side. I was a radio operator. You know, they called us WAGs, wireless operator, air gunners.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If anything happened to the air gunners, we took over. So I was sitting at the radio set and I got a few pieces of shrapnel in my leg was pretty, we were in the water for three days before they fished us out. And I lost Gordy, my lover. He was in the plane with you? Yeah, the pilot. The pilot of the plane. Yeah, there were only three of us out of eight that made it. So that left me with a few memory banks to clean up and figure out what to do with myself.
0: He was your lover. Hmm.
1: Unbelievable in those days, you know. That was a no-no. Enlisted men, uh, I was a flight sergeant. He was a flight lieutenant. We're not supposed to uh, mix. I met him in Canada, Winnipeg, uh, British Commonwealth air training program. So
0: you were in the military in Canada?
1: Yeah, well, that was the RCAF. That's where I joined up in 1940, just after the war broke out. Uh huh. Well, I don't think, what, well, I was 18, mm-hmm. or just bordering on it. I think I had to get my daddy's permission to go in uh-huh. hot to trot.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Gordy was part of the Royal Canadian Air Force and Australian Air Force contingent that came to Canada to train, the training schools for air duty. We shipped over together. So as a result of him being a pilot and training at Winnipeg, and I was going in for radio wireless operating, um, we had a very enjoyable affair. And when we got to England, what was exciting about it, to me particularly, we landed in Scotland and his home was just outside London. Yeah, a little place called Basingstoke, and uh, they shipped us to Bournemouth to live. Put us in the apartment hotels there, had been converted from civilian use to military use, and they were luxurious. I mean, we were treated oh,
0: oh. beautifully. Yeah, we oh. here. that's right. Just put that up here. Like so being attached to an IV?
1: We had. Uh, they gave us about ten days fortnight, two weeks, as they call it in those days, to rehabilitate and get settled down. And uh, I met his parents. He took me to his home for that weekend. But Gordy's parents, he was a uh working in the war effort in England. And uh, his mother and father knew we were expect- we were coming. And she was standing there at the front gate. And she just walked towards me and put out those great big arms of hers and looked at me and said, you're just exactly what my son described, welcome home. I mean, I almost fell through the floor.
0: And they knew you were a couple?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She walked up and said, you're everything that Gordy described. Huh. Wow, you know. Here comes my second mother. She was delightful. So at least during the period of the two years or so we were active duty, we had our own little nest egg place to go to and, and enjoy ourselves with the uh, loving affection of his parents, which was in those days unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Think of the setting, we're talking now in the 40s, and uh, gayville and, and homosexuality, and uh, even the word homosexuality, which didn't uh, historically, from my records, didn't become usable until 1926. When were you shot down? What, do you remember what date you were shot down? You must remember that date. It would be... About August, about the middle of August in
0: 44. In, uh, in 44, August yeah. 44, that's before the end of the European War. Yeah. That must have been devastating for you.
1: Well, three days in the ocean, you know, cold and wounded and hungry, uh, was a very devastating experience for us. And Gordy was dead by then. Well, the he plane went down. I didn't know whether anybody had been... See, we all had separate little chutes and... Uh, three dinghies were available on the aircraft for the crew. So none of us, except for those of us who were in our dinghy, the navigator and the co-pilot and I were together. We had no idea what happened to Gordon and the air gunners. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until we got home to Blackpool, uh, the hospital, and a couple of days later that I was able to connect with operations at uh, Basingstoke and Hans on the coast where our command headquarters were located in Scotland to find out if Gordy had survived and... We were the only three that survived. Mm -hmm. So it was devastating. His parents came to Blackpool to see me. It was unbelievable.
0: Do you remain in contact with him? Or did you remain in contact with him years after?
1: Oh, sure. I think they... uh... Let's see, Daddy died in 59, 60. They died around 64, 65. There's an awful lot of nostalgia there. I guess I'm lucky to be here. I think out of the whole squadron of about 70 of us that shipped out from Canada, I think maybe today there's about five or six of us alive. To me, in recollection, the real shock of losing Gordon was unbelievable. Because we were near the coast, uh, we think, uh, that he they all bailed out, we all saw we we could see the shoots. it was uh, mid sort of coming into evening
0: and we where, think where were you flying over over
1: we were just crossing the coast over oh, France uh-huh. to go on a mission into Germany, and uh, I think they shot him down, which was a a habit the enemy had at that time shooting our people in parachutes. So we think that's what happened. Mm-hmm. We're pretty sure because we landed off the coast into the ocean. So we have a hunch that the other crew members were over land well, and they yeah. were killed. Yeah, there's no record no plane, nothing. I mean, just missing an action. So you were in Vancouver then on VJ
0: day by yourself?
1: All my uh, family were there and, and uh, acquaintances. Uh-huh. Were they aware of your loss? My father was aware. Uh, mother, there's a little, there's a sixty-four acre park in the heart of Vancouver City, which is delightful, sort of like Seattle, Washington mm-hmm. Lake Union. So we were walking and uh, went to the, uh, the the music bowl and had lunch. Out of nowhere, we're sitting there drinking tea, and Mom looked at me and said. Uh, you must miss Gordon an awful lot. I mean, I almost fell off the chair. It's the first time that, and his Daddy prophetically said, when Mother's ready, she'll discuss it with you, and bingo, right in there. I loved it. So in that sense, in terms of my orientation, I've had a very uh, understanding and good, enjoyable background. I've never had those pressures of what I did. It, I'm, I can remember Dad's only remark to Archie and I was our principal of schools was gay and a coach, so we had a hell of a good time. I mean, we had a very gay basketball team and hockey team. And Mac- uh, McNeil was beautiful, but uh, Daddy just said, remember the professional background of the family. The mother was a nurse and he was a doctor, surgeon at the university. So outside of, he said, bring them home, meaning Archie and whatever, right. bring them home. That was the only admonishment I ever got
0: from my father. Why the decision to become a sexologist?
1: Well, uh, that was a result of my reading and background of my father. I had pre-med. It was during that period of time I went very heavy into parapsychology, Dr. Rhine and his wife, and uh, Harry Benjamin. Uh, in those days, we were working on, and Kinsey. but I worked with him for two years here on a
0: survey. With Alfred Kinsey? Yeah,
1: our dear Peter meter. Dr Prometheus is our favorite name for him for Dr for for Alfred Kinsey for Dr Kinsey yeah Alfred we uh, he invented what he called a petermeter <laughs> for his statistics well, and one of the instructions to the uh, interviewees was uh, you don't measure from the bottom you measure from the top fellows you know this way because you can't go any further than the os pubic bone so we named him Dr Petermeter so what's down below the root etc., the perineum count. doesn't count so he says we won't have any of those A-I measurements, fellows. You start at the top and move forward.
0: <laughs> How did you wind up working for Alfred Kinsey?
1: Was this prior to the 48 report or This was after the. That this was is- uh, uh, before and after. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But Benjamin was out here too, Dr. Harry Benjamin, and he was the one who originated transsexualism, as a result of uh, what in those days was called anism, cross-dressing, mm-hmm. transvestite, drag. Well, he resented the fact that there were many out there, uh, let's forget about pre-op and post-op transsexualism, which is the uh, pre-genital versus surgery to the post. Uh, He resented the fact that a lot of uh, men, and still is, it's mostly uh, men to women, were unable to wear uh, women's attire to cross-dress, even at home or at work without harassment by authorities. And in those days out here, I mean, it was... uh, slam-bang in the slammer, and uh, mm-hmm. indecent exposure, and uh, what was the charge? Cross-dressing was a, was a uh, misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Dr. Benjamin, uh, Kinsey introduced me to Benjamin, and my father knew him. So bingo, here I am involved in getting the right of cross-dressers and transvestites to uh, wear women attire. We finally got the police department after two years to agree to give them ID cards. You know, even in pantomime in those days here in San Francisco, you had to wear a black union all costume underneath your drag to even get up on stage. What's a black union? Yeah, a coverall. Uh uh-huh. A black coverall over your body before you put your paraphernalia on. Otherwise, you were subject to arrest. You couldn't get up on stage in pantomime and cross dress and wear drag. It was against the law. Dr. Benjamin, he had an office in New York and one out here. He was the pioneer in, in the right of people to cross dress, and he was a pioneer in in uh, uh, pre and post operation services, uh, which didn't become reality until years later, like Stanford and uh, uh, out in Kansas and Manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was the pioneer in creation of the word transsexual. He was the pioneer in getting the right of people to cross dress. Do you do you recall
0: the the release of the Kinsey report in forty eight?
1: Oh, I helped uh, read some of the galleys of that thing. I mean, psh, huh? Bits of it. I helped uh, edit the uh, work we did in San Francisco, and the work was done in Los Angeles. Was
0: that uh, report startling,
1: did you think? Not to those of us who were involved. Mm-hmm. It held no surprises. I mean, right. uh, we probably would have exaggerated a little bit more. Right. Uh, but it was a real, yeah, at large, socially, mm-hmm. Uh, Professionally and to professional people, sociologists, psychologists, and therapists, it was a mind-bender. It was a mind-bender. For what reasons? You've got a very large percentage of people that aren't exactly, uh, quote, heterosexual, unquote, oriented. Mm -hmm. The very idea of acceptance of of, uh, a group of people out there who were engaged in uh, bisexual, ambisexual, homosexual activities, and the number of them. I come from humane human rights. I put humane there, humane human rights. I have no regard for civil and legal rights, per se. To me, it's a waste of time and political activism because they're only a piece of paper. They can be rescinded and changed by a councilman, a councilwoman, a supervisor, a governor, or a president. We have plenty of evidence of that. So I'm saying, if we don't learn, to me, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, ambisexual, these are sex acts, Mm -hmm. per se. They're not a lifestyle. What we do in bed, per se, as individuals, is nobody's business out there. But I'm saying if we don't address humane human rights, we're going to lose the ball game. The civil rights and legal rights don't mean a damn thing. They're being rescinded bit by bit by bit across the country in the last three years. But people like me who've lived it, I don't need memorabilia. I don't need historical records. I'm still walking on the planet.
0: Are you retired
1: now? Or are you not retired now? Economically, and and by virtue of uh, my economic uh, losses and bankruptcy, and a few problems with alcoholism and and uh, tranquilizers, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm out of business temporarily. The uh, my dues and my membership and all the rest of it. Are, uh, I got a call about a week or so, or two weeks ago. Uh, haven't you raised that eighteen hundred back to get yourself back in the good graces of the society? I said, No, I haven't. Which society is this? The APA. <laughs> Oh, the American. Well, levels. my license fees, and the APA, and the whole bit—that's eighteen hundred bucks. I mean, mm-hmm. hey, I don't have a sugar daddy out there to right. help pay my bills. Right. I'm just surviving. Right. So, no, in that sense, I'm not practicing, but I'm as active as I possibly can be. Right. And I do a lot of therapy and speaking, which I don't charge for. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, since I love speaking and uh, my license fee—that's four—that's 400, four hundred hundred fifty bucks a year. So here I sit, you know.
0: J.J. Bellanger had a lot to say about a lot of things. He had high ideals and was fond of conspiracy theories. As our conversation rambled on beyond his life in the 1950s, I could feel the wheels coming off both J.J.'s life and his hold on reality. But that didn't keep him from collecting valuable archival materials about the movement that he donated to the One Archives. That's where you'll find the original print of that iconic photo booth kiss. And now you have a voice to go along with that picture, and a whole life that adds up to much more than one photograph. Joseph John Belanger died on January 26, 1993, two days after his 70th birthday. I couldn't find a single obituary anywhere, and it took some doing to even find out when he died. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to Sarah Burningham, our executive producer, who makes each episode sing. And thank you to audio engineer Ann Pope, who makes certain that the episodes sing on key. We had production assistance from Josh Gwynn. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thank you also to social media strategist, Will Coley, our webmaster, Jonathan dozier Izell, and researchers Bronwyn Pardis and Zachary Seltzer. Thank you to our new photo editor, Michael Green, who tracked down a slew of J.J. Ballanger photos at the One Archives. A very special thank you to our guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season three of this podcast is made possible with funding from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to makinggayhistory.com. That's where you'll find all our episodes, including photographs, notes, and links to additional information about all the people we feature in Making Gay History. So long. Until next time.